Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This is a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars concerning RPG design and publishing. This panel has been recorded at Gen Con 2016 and sponsored by the Indie Game Developer Network. Before we get to the show, the RPG Design Panelcast has a request for you. We'd love to know a bit more about you and solicit suggestions about future panels for the podcast. So if you'd be so kind as to go to tinyurl slash panelcast survey, all one word, and fill out the short survey, it'd be super appreciated. Thank you very much, and now for the show. Episode 91, Introduction to RPG Design. Recorded at Gen Con 2016. Presented by Jason Pitt, Dustin DePenning, Emily Kerboss, and Shoshana Kessak. Hello! Welcome to the first time slot for Gen Con. Congratulations for making it here. So, my name is Jason Pitt from Genesis of Legend Publishing, representing the Indie Game Developer Network. I'm a RPG designer, publisher, barista, or Genesis of Legend Publishing, and wanted to start this seminar with a bang and say, uh, you know, you are all RPG designers. I don't know if you've actually published anything yet, but you're all designers. Now let's get you from designers to awesome designers. That's what we're here to do. So, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dustin DePenning, and I uh, am here because of Willpower Games and Synthesize RPG. Uh, and uh, that is a released but not tr- truly published game, so I'm here because it's an introduction about mechanics, and I have a lot to say about game mechanics. Um, and actually, my, uh, my primary employment is I make children's board games. So I might have a slightly different bent on how I perceive game mechanics in a, you know, in a way than some of my more accomplished colleagues. So we'll see <laughs> where they uh, correct me as we move along. Many perspectives. That's the way to go. Fantastic. My name is Emily Boss, uh, Emily Care Boss. I have been publishing for about 10 years, and I started out with three games that had romance as their central themes. Which are awesome! (laughs) Thank you. This year I put them together in a a bound volume called the Romance Trilogy, so I'm very excited about that. It's it's over at the booth, and um, uh, for me, a lot of what game design comes from is what kind of story you want to tell, and then looking at the structure that works with that. Cool. Hi, I'm Shoshana Kessak. Um, I'm one of the owners of Phoenix Outlet Productions. I'm also the, a full-time writer for uh, 7C for John Wick Presents. Uh, I'm also a freelancer. I work for a lot of different companies. Um, and I guess I come from I come from a strange direction where I started designing LARPs first and then came over to tabletop, uh, as opposed to doing the other direction, which a lot of people do. So I've done RPG design sort of in a different in different forms. Um, and uh, so I've got a lot of different things to say. I've also got my master's degree in game design, so I've taught classes in, in this before. So I'd love to say about that at NYU. If you guys are ever interested in going into this in, as an academic thing, NYU's got a program for it. So, yeah. Fantastic. So, uh, to get things started, who here has already published a game? Please raise your hand. Awesome. Yay! Who is working on a game right now and you're in, like, 
the early publishing process or like poking a Kickstarter. Oh, awesome. Who here is just starting for the first time? Awesome. Fantastic. So, I think a good place to start would be, what is your game about? I think this is the most important question in game design. And it's a question that I expect everyone to be able to answer for their games. What did you say? What is your game about? So, for instance, uh, can you explain, let's say, Breaking the Ice? Pitch Breaking the Ice. Sure. Breaking the Ice is a game for two players, and you play two characters who are going on their first three dates, and it's collaborative, so you're trying to see if they can get together, or if something else happens. Why don't you pitch Synthesize? Sure. Uh, Synthesize is a uh, more uh, traditional style role-playing game, combat-focused, but it's about a future where robots are worshipped like gods, and killing humans is fair game. Uh... And, uh, yeah, human life is worthless, money and power is everything. Fantastic. Why don't you pitch any of your billion projects that you're working on? Um, cool. The one I'm working on is Wanderlust. It's a cooperative GM RPG that's set in the future where humanity and the Fae have left Earth uh, together on spaceships to try and find a new home. So you'll note that all of these games have very strong cores to them. Posterior Pathways is a game about transhumanism and sacrifice and what you give up to adapt to the, the ever-changing future. Yay! So yeah, all of these games are very different, but they all have a strong premise, which means that when we are designing the game, we can all point at that and go, hmm, does this relate to Wanderlust and Bay and Spaceships? Yes or no? If it doesn't, then kick it out of the game, because it doesn't apply to the game. It isn't part of the core experience. If it does, great. That passes the first filter. So, knowing what your game is about is super important. Um, I actually have a giant stack of business cards here, and on the inside of these is a pile of resources, hyperlinks, and questions that you should be able to answer with your games. Uh, let me just read out these questions. Tell me what your game is about. What emotion does it provoke? How are the mechanics engaging? What is the core conflict of the setting? How does it relate to the real world? <clears throat> whose voices are heard and whose are silent? These are meant to be very hard to answer. For a point, for a reason. So, um, at the end of the seminar, I'll be inviting people to come up and grab cards. Uh, so, with that said, all right. Why don't you take over? Sure. So, uh, I like to. I have a very uh, basic perspective to to uh, you know starting out in the road of game design. I'm sure a lot of you people here, you know, you're you're starting. You're looking. You've probably already educated yourself with quite a few resources. Uh, but one of the areas of confusion I have seen in people who are just starting is uh, separation between uh, setting and mechanics. They spend um, months, years in developing this rich setting, and then they never really quite figure out how it plays. 
And uh, to me, um, writing is central to developing a role-playing game, but it is, it, it is a separate part from mechanics design. It is a separate discipline. It is a separate aspect of the process. Um, very talented people do both. I am one of those people who can do one and half of the other and typically need to outsource some ideas and help. I can come up with the big picture, but the gritty details that bring life into the setting, I often uh, need help with. Of, uh, how, how do uh, you interact with the how do players interact with each other? Um, and uh, how do you get players to play the way they're supposed to? And how do you allow players to play however they want? You know, those are two conflicting needs, um, but there are ways to try to answer those in mechanics. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, important. Think about you know, the interaction of the rules. That is probably the most important part. And if you are setting-driven, though that's still an option, you can find a game that licenses out its rule set like Apocalypse World or, and uh, focus on the setting, and, you know, and that's still completely valid for game design, but just remembering that it's mechanics. And before that, it, nothing wrong with a setting, by the way. No. Can Casting disparage. Can I add to that, actually? Sure. I think that's super important to, to say right up front, that like you don't necessarily have to create your own mechanics set. Like, taking, f like, fate, right, because that's an open source that you can just do, and then building a game around that is absolutely game design. Like, you're not yes. cheating. Like, you're not, you know, you're not cutting corners. It's, you're not, it's not necessarily on you to create the next D&D. &D. It's, it's, you shouldn't take that on yourself as, like, a thing to prove that you're the next great game designer doing that. If you say, I want to create a setting that's this and have Apocalypse World in mind, like, go do it. That's going to be amazing. You're going to come up with a great game because you know what you're aiming for. But if you try to reinvent the wheel, my biggest problem with, with Wanderlust, I walked into Gen Con eight years ago, bright and shiny new, and I sat down at a, at a, at a panel by Fred Hicks, and I'm like, I'm going to create Wanderlust with like a brand new mechanic set. Gee golly willikers. Well, it took me like four years to realize that that was like the biggest, tallest order in the world, and it's just a fake game, and I really should just kind of like do that. And so I jumped like all this mess that I had created. Um, we call those fantasy heartbreakers. You're going to create one. It's going to destroy your world for a little while, and it's going to hurt your soul. And then you're going to come down here and realize what you actually want to do with it. So, but figuring that out is not going to like. It doesn't shortcut you. You just need to know what serves your game. So, so Shoshana, what does Fate Core do well, and what does it not do? Oh, sure. Um, geez, Fate Core. Uh, how do you break it down? Figor tells really great cooperative stories really well. Um, it lets you be this exciting, incredibly um, awesome hero that does like these great stunts. It puts focus on uh, the collaborative storytelling that you guys do by creating aspects together. Um, it's it's what I would call like a crunch light system, really, when it comes to like you're not going to have slide rules on the table, um, but it allows you to sort of up the ante with the GM in a really interesting way using fate points. Um, and then it's basically you can create on the fly. So you can, if you know fate, you can take out a bunch of index cards, make up a system in your head between people at a table, and run the game right at a table instantly. Um, and the system is also very flexible, uh, so you can make drifts on the rules really easily. So you can create new systems that build on top of the base really well. Um, that's why you'll see like fate puts out a lot of, there's like tons of different fate settings, and a lot of them have different mechanics drifts, um, which are that serve the setting that they want to do. Um, I worked on one that's coming out later this year called uh, Blood on the Trail, which is going to be out by Evil Hat, uh, which is about, um, uh, it's like the Oregon Trail, except there are vampires. 
uh, as if you were dying of dysentery was bad enough. <laughs> like now you have vampires to worry about. Um, so we have a mechanic about fatigue and like the, the wagon train has its own stats. So like that was just built on top of Fate Core because um, you can do that with Fate. It's very flexible. Um, but that might not serve your system. Exactly. Um, so for instance, at, at just talking about how systems are good at certain things. <clears throat> Fate is not a great system for horror because the principle of a horror game tends to be disempowering. And uh, in Fate, you pretty much always have currency that you can spend to say, and I'm awesome, and I get out of this problem, and I'm awesome. So you have all the control as a player, so it doesn't do a good, robust horror game because it's not meant to do that. It's better for, you know, collaborative, pulpy ac action kind of thing. That's, that's where it's really strong. And all three things I wrote for were hard, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to do well. It's, 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 but it can, it's just... It, yes. Yeah, right. yeah. It, it, yeah. It, 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 it takes more work to do yeah. horror off of it compared to... Uh, uh, pulp action is where it's yeah. the, the default pathway. That's a good segue so, to talking about, we talked about using existing systems, and then if you want to start moving into doing your own design... Where does that come from? How do you do that so you're not retreading the same ground or just ending up throwing out half of what you did in five years? Um, and horror is actually a good place to talk about. Um, there's a couple of games that really take that centrally as their core, yep. including Dread. Um, there's a couple of different Dreads, but one uses Jenga instead of dice. And that um, simple swap out really gives you this dynamic that Jason's talking about, where if you knock over the tower, your character dies, and sorry. So it's just like being a character in a horror film, where you could die at any time, the monster could pop out, the slasher could kill you, um, and also it creates this tension around the table where everyone's like, oh, as they're watching this, this tower get more and more rickety as you go along. And I, I think, you know, Dread is a good example of, you know, a lot of us are mired in dice mechanics. And um, I, I myself, I consider synthesize even though I love it and will keep working on it. It's basically a fantasy heartbreaker um, because it re explores a lot of existing, you know, traditional RPG mechanics. Um, I, I think it did a good job. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here. But um, I'd be back there trying to listen more. Um, and I'm still listening here because there's a lot of great stuff to be said. But I think uh, Dread uh, shows this aspect of game design that is often overlooked which is um, there are so many more dimensions besides just task resolution. And uh, Dread takes task resolution and turns it into a visualization. And that visualization creates emotional tension. And that's like a whole dimension that people hardly ever explore with role-playing games. And I, I think that there's so many, if you, you know, if you want to try something, if you want to try something new, if you want to try something exciting, uh, think of the dimensions outside of task resolution. Um, and uh, and see see what you can do. See how you can create, you know, through sound, like a role playing game based on sound. How you can create like a very strong atmosphere through tickling that sense and using that as part of the core interaction. Music, for example, is a really strong element. A lot of people play music while you're playing at the table. You can create a dramatic atmosphere or lighthearted music party or something like that. And also, there's a lot of games now that are using it as part of play either introducing the, 
the, the feeling at the beginning. Uh, a lot of LARPs do this, actually, particularly ones from the Nordic countries. It's dark a lot of the, the year there. They really like very dark stories. Um, so having a really, really meaty uh, song that you're playing at the beginning can really bring your players into the right mindset. Um, and also there's, there's a wonderful, lighthearted uh, LARP that was written recently um, by a couple of books, Evan Turner and Kat Jones, called Slayer Cake which is about metal world. You're playing heavy metal bands that live in a fantasy realm created by heavy metal and under the sway of the metal gods. And uh, basically as you play, you're, you're doing a battle of the bands. And so most of the game involves a lot of uh, air guitar and lip syncing. And so it's very, very silly and high energy. But a core mechanic of the game is actually that when you're not on the stage, you're the audience. And your job is to sell this band, like you're being a fan of the band. And the dynamic between the being on stage and having everybody else cheering for you just makes this the most blissful game you've ever played, if you ever get a chance to play. It's very, very uh, energetic because you're like cheering and everything. But, um, but there's this beautiful feedback that goes back and forth. And again, it's looking at another dimension of play. You're having the fictional, the story going on, but also you're having this great a joyousness that's created by the cheering, so it's crafting the emotions. Uh, and there's a couple other really good examples that you might want to look at. Uh, Mythender is a very interesting game of stabbing Thor in the face. Problem is, when you do this enough, you might accidentally turn it to Odin. Um, so it's a game about deicide. One of the core elements of it is you're rolling a lot of dice, and I mean a lot of dice. This means it sounds like thunder when you roll the dice. It's super clever, uh, and it's available for free uh, by Ryan Macklin. Uh, another example, um, could you talk about Ten Candles? Runner-up for the Indie Groundbreaker Award yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Another horror game. This is a new one. It just came out this past year uh, by Stephen Dewey. And it's, it's another game that focuses on a horror story, um, but this is a post-apocalyptic tale. And one of the things that you have to do when you're playing the game is just to cut out all uh, light that's uh, from other sources. You turn out the lights, you cover the windows, um, and then you just light the table by tent candles. And obviously, in most places like this, you couldn't have real candles, so you can have uh, the artificial tea candle types. But still, there's something about playing in the dark that makes you feel like you're around a campfire or you're really in the setting. Um, and slowly over time, you're, you're taking out those candles, you're blowing them out, you're turning them off. Um, and each time that a candle is snuffed out, it's married with something really big happening in the story. Someone dies, there's some major setback. And also, there's an element there that um, is a uh, not as much used in a lot of the games that we play, maybe, but fate play, where as opposed to fate, core fate, you just know what's going to happen. At the beginning, you're like, I know my character's going to die. And that's freeing in a way, because then you just, you can play towards that end. Um, and in this game, everyone knows that all the characters are going to die at the end. So you're just seeing what the arc is, how you die, what kind of sacrifices you can make, and each character has some trait that there is a weakness that they can fall prey to. That, so you're seeing, what, do they have a heroic arc where they redeem themselves, or just a tragic arc where they undermine the, 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 the party? Um, and that darkness really, really works beautifully with it. Well, there's also one mechanic a lot of people sometimes overlook, which is food. 
is a mechanic which is can be useful. You can tell a whole story by setting a dinner table, eating food, cutting cake. Um, so it's like the idea of listening to all this is uh, the five senses are what you're trying to engage in different ways. So um, dice, in, in my opinion, it's great. It's what we're always doing with, uh, and there's a reason why. Um, it, there's something very visceral about the idea of rolling the dice, seeing it the success, but um, it engages only two of our senses, right? It's our hands and maybe our ears with the thunder of like all the dice. Well, it um, engages the emotion of anticipation. Yeah, and, and but what can we get from engaging the other senses that we would, uh, like Pokemon Go basically has us with movement, right? Like, honestly, that's why so many people enjoy Pokemon Go. LARPs do it where you get up and you're moving around, uh, so you're engaging with the environment. Uh, and that does a different kind of thing because it engages sense memory in a very different way uh, and builds up an emotional connection in a different way because you're moving your muscles and doing things. So I want to segue sort of into um, uh, something that you know I focus on a lot in my design, which is what are the what are the core verbs of your game? That is sort of one of the major things that I learned at school, which is when you're designing any game, what are the the things that your characters in the game would be doing, right? So to when you want to uh, design either like the, the challenges that they're going to be facing or the story that you want to tell, what are they going to uh, have to do to accomplish that? So if you look at like Super Mario Brothers, for example, right? What does he do? He he runs, he jumps, he bonks his head on things, uh, he jumps on things. Like these are so it's, the verbs would be jumping, uh, you know, climbing, uh, running, all of those things that flying. flying. Yeah, that's one of them. So. Um, when you think about the experience that you want to give the players, uh, think about what those verbs are because that's going to be the stuff that engages um, their their emotions and their activity, and th those are going to be the tools that the, the characters have to tackle whatever challenges. So, in dungeon crawls, it's fighting, it's exploring. What are the what are those words that you're looking for, and how do your mechanics then back that up? Um, is is sort of like the mechanical way I come from. You could probably speak more to this thing. Yeah, well, um, I I don't know. I think that was quite eloquent and okay. really spoke to the you know, the core of it. Um, yeah, you know, whatever you uh, want the players to do in terms of those verbs, it's kind of what I meant earlier, but said in a much more academic and educated way. Um, the, uh, uh, whatever you want the players to do, you need to, have, you need to make sure the mechanics help them do that. Um, if you don't have mechanics for those actions, then the players might be at a loss. They might play the game in a completely unpredicted and unintended way. And I think we'll be uh, taking we'll questions. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 will, we will be taking questions, uh, but let's uh, wait a little bit more for the Q&A. Here's a beautiful example of you have to have mechanics to do the verbs. Does Shooting the Moon have a detailed combat mechanic? None whatsoever. Why is that? Because it's about a battle love triangle. But don't all role-playing games need a chapter on combat? Uh, let's see. I think to date I've written one game that has a combat mechanic, and that is slow motion violence where you just mime it, and the other person says, okay, I take it, or I hit you back. So it's not required, clearly. Um, and the actually, that was a big thing that I struggled with when I started writing games about romance, was just thinking, Okay, so what was this, what's this game going to look like? And it gave me a totally different answer than most of the games that I had seen at that time. Um, because I didn't want, it, there, it made no sense. It made no sense to structure violence when you're talking about relationships. 
And if you're making that kind of game, that's a very different kind of game than what that's I was looking at. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, thinking about it in terms of what kind of, like, resolution mechanics you want. Like, so, not every game is going to have violence in it. Not every game has to have violence in it. Not every game is about violence. But most games have to have some sort of resolution. Um, because, you know, whether or not you're negotiating, you know, your taxes as a game, you know, taxes the home game, or, uh, you know, you're going to be fighting a dungeon, you're, you have a goal, and you need to get to the end of that goal. How is that resolved? Um, the question that, you, that I like to tackle is, is it cooperative? Is it not cooperative? Are you and the other people working together um, to achieve an end? So you have games like, um, one of my favorite games is, you know, Pandemic Legacy. Uh, we play a lot in my house. Which is, you know, you're playing Pandemic, but all of you at the table are talking about working together to resolve this horrible uh, thing that's going to kill you all and, you know, wreck your dreams. And, like, so there are lots of games that are, even role-playing games, where you're sitting at the table and saying, how are we going to solve all these problems together? Um, as opposed to uh, a game which is more combative, uh, where PvP is even an option, uh, you know, with, with characters, or where you just all have your own goals and you're just sort of going together in one direction. Um, but deciding that in advance helps, right, for to decide, like, how the players are going to interact with one another, what their goals are, and how they're going to reach them. Um, and then deciding what those goals are. Like, again, are they romancing? Are they trying to get the dungeon? And then if, to decide what those mechanics are going to be um, based upon the themes that you're putting forward. Um, and how complicated they're going to be, which and is the other thing. Yeah, and I think sort of an, uh, an aspect where, you know, I talked earlier about the separation between setting and rules. Uh, this is an area where setting complements rules because in uh, traditional games, uh, traditional role-playing games, you know, and old-school role-playing games, and then uh, I would say even more so in modern um, story games, uh, the story of the world that the game takes place is uh, the primary way in which players understand what their goal is. And then the rules then have to follow that. So it can't, you know, starting with setting, you know, what, what I almost discount what I said earlier, starting with setting can be a great place to make your game because then that tells you what your rules should be. Um, because you've found the goal. You can answer those questions about what your game is about, what, what the players do. All those sorts of things. I would love to have your card. Actually, I have one um, in my pocket somewhere. So, one thing in every game, you always have uh, three unique components coming to the table. You have uh, the players who are playing the game. You have the GM, who may be one of the players who's administering things and effectively parsing the rules. And you have uh, the game system itself. All of these three ingredients are interacting. And paying attention to how each of these components works with the others, what the rules tell the GM to, to do, what the GM, how the GM is interacting with the players, how the players are interacting with the rules, those are the interactions that you really need to focus on and pay attention to. Because GMs have their own rules. Uh, it's not... It, it was less emphasized in some of the older games, but um, games such as Marvel, Marvel Heroic uh, did a fantastic job giving mechanics for what the GM could do so that uh, the GM had a limited set of resources. And it's a fascinating area of design to look in on. 
Uh, and there is an entire domain of games in the story games tradition uh, known as gemless or gemful games. Uh, best model for this is Fiasco. And these ones, the GM role is distributed. So everyone participating it has um, roughly equivalent, either all at the same time or at different points in time. They have the same level of uh, sort of GM power to affect the story. Um, so these are all variables. I have sort of a structure when you're looking at a game and you're not necessarily looking at the GM versus player divide. Um, one way to think about it is uh, where is the pressure being applied? Where is the adversity coming from? It can be internal. Uh, and then we start thinking about the dynamic between the different characters and between the players. Is it internal so that the, the main pressure is that the, uh, each of the, the characters has a strong goal that's uh, um, in adversity with the others? So um, Vampire of the Masquerade is a good example. There's a tremendous amount of politicking, intrigue. People are part of different camps that are trying to um, win over one another. Um, or are you going to have some external pressure? Dungeons and Dragons, for example. You're fighting together as a party to kill the monster, fight uh, another uh, group of uh, opponents. Um, so then it's external. And then once you know what direction it's coming from and what flavor it's going to be, then you can figure out who needs to apply it. Pandemic, the system, applies the pressure. You're just fighting against time. And a thing that is common to a lot of particularly cooperative board games is that you, you lose a lot. <laughs> and there's a lot on the line, it's not easy. It's actually harder sometimes than if you have an outside facilitator because in many games, if you really step back and look at it, the, the contract you're signing on for is for the, the facilitator to let you win at the end. Not in every game. There's a huge uh, amount of uh, old school renaissance games that really embrace you're gonna die and accept it or fight like, like mad to, to win. Um, but the, the game balance that's created by the rules that the facilitator or the GM uses tunes that adversity to figure out what, what kind of outcome are you going to expect as a player. Do you want to have the heroic outcome? Do you want to have it to be tragic? Do you want it to be up in the air? All of these things, that's, basically that's what the rules are doing. They're creating a social contract between the players so that you can know what you're going to expect. And I think, you know, one of the ways to kind of sum that up and, 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 and uh, look at it is uh, when you look at role-playing games as, you know, stories, um, stories are about conflict. You know, conflict is the pressure, so where does the conflict come from? Um, and we have, again, you know, back to Jason talking about the three things, the players, the GM, who might even not exist and might be playing in the system. You know, where does the conflict come from? Who applies the pressure? Um, and I think that's an area where, you know, I work in the uh, children's board gaming industry. Uh, the, uh, almost always the conflict comes from how the system pits the players against themselves. And there is a defined winner. And that's actually something that's very unique about um, a lot of role-playing games. They're always, uh, a lot of them are cooperative, there's no winners and losers. Um, the pressure comes from the players wanting the pressure, wanting the conflict, and wanting to tell the story. Um, but the rules have to help them do that. So there's just, again, you know, if you just think of the concept of conflict and where conflict is in your system, and then how you uh, demonstrate that conflict using different senses, using, you know, different aspects, I think uh, it's, it's more than just, you know, here's my dice mechanic and I 
point of killed monster. Well, you know, it's also along with the conflict when you're talking about setting and then the development of setting, um, where the power lies at the table will also oftentimes tell you a lot of where the setting and the story is coming from too. Um, so if you have a game that's like uh, that's GM heavy, generally it means the GM is going to be controlling a great deal of the adventure that's at the table. They, you know, it's traditional like the GM will sit down, have planned an adventure for a long period of time before, and sort of present that information, and the players then react to it and try to face it. Or there are you know game books that come in with a lot of setting information that's already built in. Uh, and therefore the system is actually handing it to you, the system therefore being represented by the physical materials. Cooperative games oftentimes will allow for the players at the table to create more of that, and so the setting and the story will come from the people who are at the table then coming up with it together. Um, the question then becomes, which of these do you want your games to do? Um, if you want to have like a rules book that basically comes out with Okay, you have you know four chapters of, of setting material, and you're setting up this like giant world. Uh, that's great. That's a that's a valid choice. And then you have the mechanics that go with it. I'm of the opinion, um, after a few years of trying this in both directions, I'm of the opinion that the two need to be developed side by side by developers now. Um, sort of because uh, you like sometimes you can feel where one has been developed more, and then you go to like the setting has been developed more, and then the mechanics came in later to fit. Um, you can sort of see that sometimes in a design. Um, I think to oftentimes to get the, the feelings together, they sort of have to go side by side, so that while you're doing your story, you have to think, where are my mechanics here, and how are they going to feed the flavor of what we're putting together? Um, because if you later try to come in, it's sort of like, there's some video games that do this, where you're like, oh, there was a writer who came in later who fit this, like, you know, you just shoehorned it in. Um, or the other way around, where they're like, we have this great idea, and now we have to come up with a puzzle platformer that works with it. Um, but making them together works great. Uh, two things. One thing, totally building on that. Another thing, moving back to something you hinted at. Uh, first thing is, um, even if you start with one, if you're willing to throw a lot away, then you can go back and marry the two. Um, but developing two, the two at the same time is the more efficient, more conscious way to do it. Let's say you have a game that's really far along in one direction, as long as you're willing to kill at least part of that baby, um, you will, uh, you can, you know, bring in the other aspects. You know, it's sort of like you know, video games that delays because they bring on a new writer and then they have to redo, you know, huge. They have to redo entire levels, you know, and re, you know, reinvent the core mechanic of the game. Um, uh, you know, you have to be willing to do that if you if you realize you neglected a part of your design. You need to be willing to, to make those sacrifices to address that aspect of your design. Uh, but the other thing I want to talk about is something that I think is so rarely brought up, and I think it's something that people do instinctually, um, and I, but I think people don't really talk about it, is does your role-playing game require preparation, and how do you help with that preparation? Um, that's actually one of the things I'm proud of with Synthesize, is I wanted the game to uh, run like a traditional game where... Uh, you have like sort of a preset story that the players can explore, but the way I changed the preparation is I told basically told the game master, you need to create a uh, wheelhouse of characters, and I'm going to give you an automated computer tool to help you do that, so it goes much faster. And then at the table, you need to improvise and play off the, the characters and decide when and how to bring those character that wheelhouse of characters and enemies you've made into the story. 
So basically, they, you get the feeling of a pre-planned adventure, but it's a flexible, more breathing experience uh, rather than a uh, you know railroad <coughs> like people like to complain about. Because if you you know if you require the GM to basically uh, follow a, a, a script and, and create a script, that's hours and hours and hours of preparation, which he may love because some people love that. And it requires his players to accept the contract of, here's this thing I spent hours creating. You are going to experience it the way I planned it. And that's, that's valid. That's a valid form of play. But not everybody likes that. Um, so I, I, And I think the thing that's so interesting about story games is um, they kind of implicitly... Planning? What is this planning you speak of? <laughs> yes. They kind of implicitly go, the planning is handled by what the game's about. And you just jump in and play. And... Uh, the planning was done by the designer rather than uh, the game master necessarily. And so I, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about is how much work are you putting on them to get ready to play. Uh, I think that's a really important point. Um, I'm just going to throw out one game recommendation. Apocalypse World. This is a masterwork uh, that people can look at as an example of how the system and the setting are hooked tightly into each other. How you don't need uh, and actually shouldn't be planning ahead of time. And how the system can carry that weight for you. Uh, it, For those who have not played it or uh, checked it out, uh, it's going to be uh, published in second edition very soon. Uh, and it does Mad Max Fury Road. It does that beautifully. Um... So, recommend that you check it out. It is full of all sorts of game design wizardry. Um, McGay and Vincent Baker are amazing. What's interesting about those games also is, uh, from a design perspective, those games also have a lower barrier for entry, especially for new players. Uh, that's that, like A lot of role-playing games can be really intimidating to new people. Um, it, it comes with a lot of um, explicit rules, which are written in these like giant books that look like a textbook that you gotta like lug in. There could be like fourteen of them, um, and then you have to learn on the go sometimes, like all the implicit rules of how things work. Like, you know, like not everything is written in in, a, in the book about what are, what's the etiquette of role playing games, how to role play. Like, if there are there's very few sections of that actually in books, which uh, which can be very difficult for new people. Um, but also, when a person comes to the table, uh, the barrier for entry can be a little high because there's a lot of information in, in a book, right? When you're thinking about designing your game, how much do you want there to be a barrier for entry? How new person friendly do you want it to be? And realizing that the bigger the book, the more dense it is, can sometimes be something that gets people nervous. How much prep time in advance do you need is also an entry for a lot of people. Um, if you're, in, for example, in college, sometimes you, you know, or you're younger, you got plenty of spare time. You're gonna like take the books and you can sit there for two weeks planning this grandiose adventure. But when you get older, like I've noticed this, like my friends got kids, we got jobs. Like it's hard to, you know, plan things for six months or run a campaign that's gonna take a year to finish. Some people want a game that you can just pick up like Apocalypse World and be like, cool, we're gonna do this right at the table, and then go check on the kids, you know, taking a nap. Um, that's important to know who's your audience. Note to self, don't run Apocalypse World close to small children. Yeah, that's just, not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> not genre appropriate. They should be at least Dungeon World only. Away. Yeah. Like, the Baker's you, teens are some of their main uh, playtesters. Yeah. <clears throat> it works. Yeah, it works. But that, that's another thing to think of, right? What's your age dynamic? What are you, yep. Who's your demographic? 
are you aiming for teenagers? Are you aiming for kids? What's, to use the rating system, what's the rating you want to put on this game? Like any LARP, for example, that I run, we put a rating at the beginning of the game because we're like, we are going to use this many swear words by the end of the night. If you have a problem with that, you probably shouldn't be here. I'm going to try to scare you this much. Uh, if you have a problem with that, please don't be here because that might be a problem. Um, so making it um, explicit what is in your game and knowing what you want that game to do is, is super important. If you want to write a, a, a game for children, probably Apocalypse World is not the model you're going for. No. Um, or, you know, you could take Apocalypse World, hack it, and make it into fluffy bunnies on Fury Road and, like, go for it. But, like, or maybe just, Threadbare. Or th yeah, yeah. Threadbare. Threadbare. You know, like, enjoy Which is about steampunk toys coming yeah. 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 The uh, audience perspective uh, I love because that is literally my job uh, doing children's board games um, and I also do uh, adult party games and stuff like that yeah. is um, who is it for and that is such a huge question and a lot of us default to the answer myself um, in fact I, that's a big reason why I consider my game a fantasy heartbreaker that I love is because it's for me and I'm just hoping there's enough other people out there like me that they will appreciate the game. Yeah. But I, you know, despite you know how much I've invested in the game, I have to be willing to accept that maybe there's only ten other people out there <laughs> who want to play this game because it's for me. Um, so that's one of the areas of if you're looking for success is, you know, sometimes this is considered evil because it's marketing. Um, think about the audiences that exist. Think about the size of those audiences and try to familiarize yourselves with different diverse crowds and diverse voices and different desires. And uh, an a way you can succeed in game design is by finding an underserved market and finding a way to service that market. You can think about your game design as either uh, an open door or barriers to entry. Uh, so thinking about ways to be more inclusive um, and thinking about how it can include the greatest number of people or the specific markets that you're looking for are all really important questions. There was a concept that Dustin brought up before that I thought was a good one to, for us to talk about a little bit or just have the other, but core mechanic. And that's, that's a concept in game design that is helpful sometimes to analyze your own work. Think about what is the core mechanic or rule or procedure in what you're asking people to do. It's usually something that everything else hinges upon or it's the thing that's most structured that takes up the most amount of playtime. Um, and then if you have other subsystems, how do they interact with them? Um, and another um, concept that's useful to think about is reward cycle. How, what, how and what kind of rewards are you giving people? Um, a lot of times that comes through uh, progression, when your character develops, gets more abilities, more, more objects that they can do things with, but it could be entirely different. Um, in my game Shooting the Moon, the Love Triangle one, uh, over time uh, people are, are putting more traits and adjectives onto the characters, which can be good and can be bad. So you're actually shaping the characters into, you're learning more about them as you go. And people can use those traits, whatever they are, good or bad, but it means that you're, you're developing the character. Uh, so the reward cycle there is that you're getting good and bad feedback from the other players at the table. Um, and knowing where they are, whether they're big, whether they're, how do you win at the end to, in this moment when I'm interacting with your character, what are the rewards? Is it just the fact that we're interacting and getting some feedback from one another? Or if we have a certain kind of reaction, interaction, does that mean that I get something mechanically that will help me later on in play? All of those things can help you sort of hone in on what you're doing and how it's, how it's uh, 
feeding into the verbs or not, and connecting with your setting or not. Fantastic. So let's question at this point. Yeah. All right. Questions. If you have questions, raise your hand. First. Yeah. Um, oh. oh. Yeah, right. it, yes, sir. We'll just go at the same time. Run out of time. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, can you talk about what goes into something that be GMless? Any any tips on that? Yeah, uh, I guess Wanderlust is actually a GM. Well, it's not a GMless entirely system, but uh, it's a shared GM system. So effectively, it's uh, everybody at the table has has the responsibility of the GM, um, and you trade off basically by um, bidding uh, whose story you want to follow, um, uh, who is going to take control of the story. So there are a lot of different ways that you can either share the responsibility, because somebody is going to direct the story. That's going to kind of be, and it's not just everybody shouting at once, uh, or maybe it is, uh, if that's the, you know, the, the atmosphere you want. But um, a GMless system, in my eyes, is basically, instead of saying uh, one person has the power, it's not top-down, it's that the power is then distributed evenly uh, in different ways. And that can be also like one person contributes one part of the story, um, or... There is no set person who controls it. The system does the job. Yeah. Um, so the system is then in place. Uh, I'm working on a small tabletop where it's uh, all arbitrated by uh, tea ceremony. So everybody's sitting and serving tea, and the core mechanic is fighting over who's pouring tea for each other. Um, and so, like, that's it. Like, the whole, the whole interaction is arbitrated by everybody at the table. There's no need for a GM because it's an understood set enclosed system going so is forward. It, is a GMless game a board game with some acting? It's usually, a, a lot of them are role-playing <laughs> games where there might be turn-taking. So instead of having the scenes just play out and someone's uh, talking for a lot of different NPCs like a GM would, um, everyone's taking turns perhaps uh, saying, we're going to focus <clears throat> this scene on my character. You guys will all play NPCs in this character, in this like scene. Fall. Like mm -hmm. fall. Falls, yep. yeah. So you don't always play your own character. Right. It varies. Um, so I'm just going to throw out a couple recommendations for GMless games that people should look at that, are, that do this all very different ways. Um, Fiasco. Mm -hmm. Polaris. Mm -hmm. Microscope. Slash the Fall. Slash the Fall. <laughs> um, these three are pretty solid touchstones and show very different ways to handle it. Uh, I believe that Polaris might have been officially the the first one. Um, uh, Universalis. Oh Universalis. yes, Universalis. Um, so yeah, um, those are good reference points to look at. Uh, so yes, next question. Okay, so you got me thinking about this. Um, a little while ago, we were talking about senses, like getting different senses into the game. For example. Uh, how the dice create anticipation, or how the how music at the table could create, and how it's important to, I guess, interact with the player senses at the table. And then we started talking about um, verbs and the way that your characters are interacting, what they're doing, jumping or running or fighting or whatever. Um, how do you see like the player verbs versus the, what the players are doing versus like what the characters are doing? How do you see that? That's, uh, how do you see that? Dynamic? I'd say that's like your resolution mechanic, you know, in a way, is what do the players do in order to decide what their characters do? And you can have a game like LARPs, which tend to be very close, where it's getting as close, it's approaching one to one, where if 
my character swings a sword, that means myself in real life has to swing the sword. If my character is jumping, myself in real life has to jump. Um, you can um, you can distance, you can you know grow. It, it just depends on you know what you want out of the experience. But Going back to Dread, that's another game where what the player is doing is totally different from what the character is doing, <coughs> but emotionally you're bringing them together because you have a sense of suspense. Can you tell people about Bleed, please? Oh, bleed. You have to talk about Bleed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Bleed is, is uh, times when what your character is experiencing spills over into your emotional life, uh, or vice versa. So if you're having a really bad day, and all of a sudden your character is super grouchy everybody, um, that's Bleed. Um, and uh, because I work with romance games, that was something that came up when I was thinking about it, because if you're flirting with somebody in-game, sometimes the lines can get very blurry. Um, and so, as we think about how we're playing, we're creating situations where people are having real-life interactions with people in a fictional way. So it's easy to think, oh, well, that was just a game, it doesn't matter. But has anybody ever played the game Diplomacy by any chance? Yeah. That's like the, the friendship breaker, right? <laughs> when you're asking people to sit down with their friends for like eight hours or however long it takes, uh, and knife them in the back repeatedly, <laughs> it's going to hurt. So. That's a very interesting and important place to think about. What are you actually asking people to do to other human beings? Remember that just because it's fiction doesn't mean we're not actually breathing and, and interrupting. Does bleed happen both ways, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. You could take the stuff that you get in character. Like, if you've had a really intense, even tabletop session, and you've had this really intense experience, and then you walk out and, like, your character died, right? Like, and it was, like you've played this character for five years. And then you walk out and you're like, God, why am I depressed for like a week? Yep. It's because you've lost this connection to this thing that you cared about. That's loss. You're experiencing loss. <clears throat> and you can't just disconnect it and say, well, it's not real. You're experiencing it. It's real. It's just over. You get the same thing from watching a, a you know, the, reading the last book of Harry Potter, if you loved Harry Potter, right? You experience loss. There's no more Harry Potter. It's, it's sort of the same thing. Um, but I think you, you bring up an interesting point, which is the distance between those things is a design choice that yeah. you, you need to sort of calibrate in your in your design. Like rolling dice in, in a in a tabletop game and saying I hit it with a sword is very different than in a LARP where you're actually hitting somebody with a sword. The distance between the actions is very very far apart. Um, that will create very different experiences as opposed to say um, you want to sit there and have social mechanics of. Um, yelling at each other, actually being the arbiter of how you, um, you know, agree on something in a in a game or disagree. Um, that is exactly the same emotion for player and character, or action for player and character that will elicit what you want. That's a calibration, and you could do that at a tabletop. It's not just LARPs that can do that. Your resolution mechanics can be as simple as you know, I've, I'm you know, we're playing poker, and it's actually how we resolve the mechanics of this game is we're actually playing poker. Um, and then, with chips, that sort of thing. And this can happen in a lot more subtle ways as well. Yeah. So, for instance, so, Shoshana, I am giving you a die. We've just made it a happy, uh, positive environment. Yeah. So, we're playing a political game, and I'm taking your die right. from you in front of you. Yeah. Wow. We've totally changed the dynamic at the table just by this simple physical interaction. So, so yes. Question. All right. Yes. So uh, you talked earlier about um, uh, designing a, a setting uh, for an existing uh, system. Yep. Uh, what about the reverse of that, creating a system that doesn't necessarily have a setting, but is just a rule set? This is a really 
easy place for a lot of designers to head for to start, and I recommend avoiding it because that's what I did. <laughs> um, it's um, you need to have some kind of strong fictional hook, uh, both to make sure that your mechanics are engaging. And also, in the publishing panel, we'll talk about this more, but if you want to actually sell a product, you have to be able to pitch it in a, in a robust way. And the setting is the best uh, tool for that, I think in that, my experience. Absolutely. Having a very strong setting makes it clear and concrete to people what they're going to be doing, and also makes, gives people so many tools to play. If you, don't, if you don't want to do that, then the next step is having a really, really clear situation. So that maybe can be set in many different types of settings, but you absolutely know what the characters are going to do and what kinds of things that the players are going to be interested by. Um, that's the approach I took for my romance games, where each of them, you can set them in different places, but you know in one, it's going to be two characters seeing if they fall in love. You know in another, it's going to be a love triangle. You know in the third, it's going to be, well, a whole bunch of people falling in love. So actually, I think what you're saying to tie back to what Jason said is you should at least choose what the character verbs are. Yeah. If you're going, if you're not going to write a whole robust setting for your game, you should at least know what the character verbs are before you start your rules. Because um, otherwise, you're going to get uh, stuck into a, another vein of fantasy heartbreaker, which is uh, simulationism game design. Which simulationism is a valid form of play, but an incredibly challenging type of game to make, and an incredibly challenging type of game to market. And so, you mean? A game that can simulate reality yes. or could do anything. Game as physics engine is difficult. Don't start there. I, I would say um, a really good system to look at that, that actually started out this way that, um, uh, is the, the Chrono system uh, by Eschaton Media. Uh, it's, it, it's actually a game system that uh, I worked on, but uh, when, when they pitched it to me, when they told me that they were designing it, I was like, this is never going to work. Because it's a, it's a card-based role-playing system that can go from being a LARP to a tabletop and back again, and it can be addressed, you can literally play anything with it, uh, because your entire character sheet is built out of collectible cards, um, and you can they, they sell different decks for different things, so you can just mix and match and whatever, or make your own. Um, but when they came into it, it's with the understanding that they planned for, this needs to be able to handle everything, and the mechanics need to be robust enough that you can literally play, you can try the demos that they have up at their booth, you can literally build your character sheet as Pikachu or, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and, like, you're just putting together different cards that are archetypical that you then put, like, a skein on top of, and I've designed skeins towards it, I was also on the core book, you, it's very hard to make it broad enough that you can then, like, crash test it on so many different things, um, but that's, if you're going to go that direction, that's what you have to do. You have to crash test your system on everything. You have to try every different genre, see if it breaks, see what your mechanics do, and you have to look, the, the core verbs that you're going to be like looking at are things like doing. <laughs> like you're going to be going down to like the simplest things that you possibly can. Doing, moving, um, resolving, how are those things done? You're, you're breaking it down to the basis block. And that can be really challenging. Um, to see if that works with like putting different things on top yeah. of it. And from a product design perspective, um, when we talk about you know um, these questions that Jason has on this handout that you're all going to get, um, in a lot of ways are like you know what is you know to speak in broad terms, what is your game's hook? You know how does it 
garner the attention of potential players. What would make somebody excited about it? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I would say the hook of that game still has a hook. Yeah. Even, even though it's universalist, it's not like you can do anything with it and then that's it. It's you can do anything with it through collectible cards. Yeah. Yep. And so it has a it has a point of differentiation, point of departure, point of identity. Yeah. So uh, let's just do final remarks and then let people grab cards and flee. If they're <laughs> fleeing. If not, publishing panels in here right after. So uh, final remarks? Uh, game accessibility, I think, is huge. Uh, I struggle with this, and I try my, my hardest, um, but if you... Uh, games are meant to be played, so try to write your game in a way that people can actually play it. Uh, if you want to design games, play a large number and a large variety of different games. The uh, IGDN booth, uh, 2311, and the Indie Press Revolution booth are both have a wide variety of different games that I recommend you check out. Also, Games on Demand is a place to check out a lot of different games. Um, and for me, I'd say find a, a story or a situation that you feel passionately about that when you tell other people about, they go, oh, wow, and that's a good direction to go in. Um, make sure that the game that you want to design, that you love it, because you're going to be working on this for a long time. Um, make sure that you play it and test it and crash test it. Um, and make sure you don't get attached to anything too early on uh, because you're probably going to have to chuck some stuff and if you get stuck because you are being recalcitrant about that it's going to slow you down and the last thing is, for me is um, uh, make sure that you understand that there are lots of different kinds of people out there who want to play your game um, uh, who are going to want to play your game uh, so make sure it's accessible in terms of like the content, the representation that's in it that's always very important to me Fantastic. Thank you very much. And I'll have cards and I'll come by so people can get some.